Heavenly Father, your word is awesome and wonderful. We're so grateful that we have it in our hands to look at and study and to speak to us about who you are, what you uh, want, what you desire, what you love, and what you hate. You are uh, a full-orbed God, and we want to just uh, uh, accept you for who you are, Lord, to acknowledge uh, your greatness. And so I just pray that you would help us tonight as we look in this, uh, the rest of this chapter uh, of Daniel that you've inspired. Please help us to hear what you want us to hear out of it. Guide my mouth and uh, just help us to be blessed by your word tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So welcome to you faithful friends here and whoever's watching online. I know there's some of you out there, so uh, God bless you for taking time to listen to his word. It is awesome. I'm being blessed just by the study of it. So uh, even that is enough for me. So thankful to God for all of that. And uh, so we're again, we're in chapter seven. Last week, we didn't make a whole lot of progress. I think we ended up <laughs> at verse, hmm, I don't know, eight. Uh, but anyway, we're going to start on and I'm going to work uh, hard to try and get through the rest of this chapter tonight. I want to. We'll see how we do. Anyway, we... Um, Started last week just to try and get up to speed a little bit, hearing from Daniel. So this godly prophet of God spent his whole life in captive captivity in Babylon, but worked for government, ended up to be a high official there. Uh, he maintained his godly character and behavior throughout his whole life in Babylon, uh, being a witness and a servant to at least three kings. There was some in there in between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar that's a little bit uh, cloudy, what went on with there, don't know what, and Daniel didn't talk about it, so we don't really know, but we know for sure that he was a servant to three kings in this kingdom of Babylon. Uh, we've, we heard, first of all, in chapter two about the dream, and so Daniel, even at the beginning of his career when he was a young man, God started to use him, and so he interpreted uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, uh, it, and you remember the dream, it was the big statue, the beautiful metals going from gold down to super strong metal, steel to, uh, for uh, iron, legs, and feet and toes. And, and then tonight we're going to see, again in chapter 7, we, we're going to uh, start at the fourth beast. But again, it was four, four beasts corresponding to the four metals, and then we had the ten toes, and we'll have ten horns here. So there's a parallel they're talking about the same thing, the same kingdoms, uh, but in parallel. And we talked a little bit last time about how uh, we looked at man's view of these kingdoms and how he looks at himself and he's kind of puffed up and looks at all his grandeur and the kingdoms as he rules the world and, and hopefully does, uh, that it's magnificent and beautiful. And so Nebuchadnezzar's dream corresponded to that. These were these beautiful metals. But again, they were destroyed in the end. And then we see tonight, uh, and moving on from there, four beasts. And so when we see from God's point of view how he would look at man's rule and man's kingdoms and how he does it on earth, he looks at these uh, cruel, vicious, deadly beasts. And that's how man rules his kingdom. And, so, and we've looked back, and if we look at history, the history of man from the very beginning until now, it's war. I wish I had to put the note down, but I think... From the beginning until now, uh, oh, I don't want to mess it up here or go make a wrong number, but I'm sure it's, it was maybe 50,000 wars and treaties that have been made over time. We can't get it right. We can't live without being a warring race. That's what humanity is. So we see these parallel visions, and I, I think there's a couple principles I want to uh, emphasize as we go through Daniel, one of them is a principle of repetition and of expansion. So we saw the the image in chapter 2. It was uh, an overview. We come to chapter 7. We're going to see a little bit more and a little more detail. And then as we go further on in 8 through 12, we'll see even more detail that uh, God reveals through Daniel in making a framework for the Gentile world and then history of the world clear out into eternity. Another thing about this, as we think about uh, why would Daniel have to talk in visions, why couldn't he just 
God just write it out and go this, 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 and this. It'd be kind of dry. And, all, and the principle also we know about is that a picture can tell a thousand words. Pictures sometimes can tell us uh, things better than just dry language. There's a, just a quick look, and I wasn't sure last week. I may not have had the, the outline updated, but this, this is what we were looking at this time. And then again, just to acknowledge where we are in the prophetic uh, part of the book of Daniel. So the last six chapters, 7 through 12, are prophetic. And so we're looking at still at chapter 7 tonight. This is Daniel's first vision written in the first year of Belshazzar. Get a little bit different look at it here again that shows us his first vision there in chapter 7 is right at the start of Belshazzar. Maybe, you know, not quite halfway through Daniel's life of ministry. I'm not sure that that is quite right either when it when it shows it in that perspective because I think Daniel here when he gets his first vision might be around 70 years old. So that that doesn't really correspond in the in the graphic there but anyway it does give you a, a picture of where they fall in place there. And again when we talk about these beast visions these were the four that we looked at uh, last time and the four beasts in Daniel chapter 7 and we saw lion bear, leopard, and then this exceedingly dreadful beast that couldn't even correspond to a, a regular animal. We talked a little bit about those, and those represent uh, Babylon is beast number one, like a lion. Uh, number two is Medo-Persia, like a bear, one side lifted up. Uh, media the, being the lower side, Persia the stronger side. And then uh, Alexander's kingdom, number three of Greece, like a leopard swift, took over so much territory so fast compared to some of the other uh, kingdoms of the world. And then tonight we're going to talk mostly then from uh, verse, verses 7 and 8, I think is where I'm starting here, uh, and following, yeah, verse 7 on. We'll talk about this beast number 4, his characteristics. So that's a little overview of how we got to where we are. This shows again a graphic of the correspondence between the, the metals and the uh, beasts and how we see a parallel between the two. I thought this one was pretty good when I looked for graphics. I mean, this is a, a picture from Daniel through Daniel of visions of different kinds of beasts. And so this would be the fourth beast and it talks about <clears throat> and we'll read it here. And so I'll leave that one up there. And I thought that was pretty fitting. That was a pretty scary looking, nasty beast with iron teeth and the claws. Those claws are pretty scary too, uh, strong. I thought that was a pretty good representation there as we, as we read. So we'll start in verse 7. And Daniel says, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Again, so we're going to get some more details as we go along here, more than we got out of the dream in chapter 2. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed uh, eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. And, I, and I've seen this one before. You, you should like this one too. This is a <laughs> another graphic of, see there's the beast's head there. Uh, he, this little horn comes up, he pulls out three, so you have uh, seven left kind of in the background, and he takes the place of three. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means, what the, what the visual of that is supposed to mean. And so he does give us some more detail. Um, from the ten horns, a little co horn comes up. And again, that corresponds, if you think back to the Nebuchadnezzar's statue, it came to ten toes. So it's easy to, to uh, put the two together. They're made to be a parallel with each other. And this is more detail that God gives us in Daniel's vision. So it tells us that it, the text tells us that it's not a kingdom only, but it's also a man and a big mouth man at that. I think the, the artist got a pretty good even interpretation of the expression there. So he's not a nice man and the things he said aren't, you know, soft, easy, nice things. So he, 
he gets it pretty good there to this beast, this, this Antichrist person, and that's who this, this man is as we look further into the Scriptures. His, the things he says are not good, and his attitude is not good. So it tells that he uh, took three uh, up by the roots, the other three horns by the roots, and I just as the only thing I could come up with that, that made me think about that was back when I was in my 40s, and I had to get one of my wisdom teeth out. And so I was in the chair there. I was old, older. And I thought, hmm, well, I wonder what technique they're going to use to do this. And so he put some Novocaine in there, got me deadened up. Then he comes over with these pliers. And they look just like kind of the ones that I had at home. And he gets in there and starts twisting and pulling. And I can hear it you know, scraping around in there. And pretty soon, there it came out. That's the picture that we have here of this, that it's not going to be a pleasant thing these three kingdoms are going to cease to exist because of the Antichrist, and he's going to come and take them over, pull them out by the roots, and take them over, take their place to rule. So it's symbolic of the Antichrist in the end, the end days. Uh, he's going to be smooth on the surface. I mean, this doesn't quite portray everything about him because I think when he comes into play in the future, he's going to be a ruler that initially is going to seem like the best man in the world. He's going to be smooth. He's going to be a great talker. The world's going to want to follow after him, but he will actually be the most evil, cruel, murderous man ever in history. So that's the little horn we're talking about, and we will be looking closer at him, at this character later on, because he's also brought up in Daniel's uh, visions of the future here in the later chapters. So we go to verse 9, says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming up from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I looked, because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So that is an awesome uh, section right there. It's uh, Daniel's view changes from what we look at the beast kingdoms of the earth to heaven. And it's a glorious picture it is. And if you kind of picture the scene, and maybe those, some of these are maybe best left to our imagination as we try and imagine a scene like that where God in all his glory, and I think we, because of the context and, and how it's laid out there, we would have to say the Ancient of Days here is God the Father. So we see him on the throne just in this glorious setup where innumerable holy ones are around him worshiping and praising and waiting on him. But it's not this serene, uh, placid scene. It also talks about fire flowing out, um, power, his, the, the thousands and thousands attending, uh, a river of fire talking about judgment. And we just, so if you just let that sink in a minute, just to picture this glorious scene that Daniel sees. So it's a, it's a great transition away from these beast kingdoms and God reveals to us what the future is going to be like. And so we do see that the world is going to be ruled by these beasts for a long time. But there is an end to it. And we see God take over and judgment will come. It says the, the court sat and the books were opened. So there will be a judgment. There will be a time when this world and all its uh, pomp and circumstance and earthly Governments will stop and God will rule. 
I don't think, well, and it's parallel too. And another, another look at that, I think, is in Revelation 4. So if we think back and having gone through the Revelation a year or so ago, chapters 4 and 5 are God's throne room. So after Jesus gives his letters of uh, admonition to the churches, we see chapters 4 and 5 be this throne room setting. And, and 5, it comes into play here too in a little bit. But we do see in Revelation 4, 2 through 4, immediately I was in the Spirit talking about John this time and his visions. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. And so it does correspond, and it maybe helps us to understand a little bit when we see in chapter in verse 9, it says, thrones were set up, and then the Ancient of Days took his seat, his throne. So there uh, are thrones here. We, we have interpreted that as we look at the Revelation to be the church, and the, the elders being the, the church. We'll see how that does, but it does show us the scene in heaven that there is uh, under rulers, under the throne of God. And we'll see that uh, further on in this chapter too as that works out. That That's what God says. That's Those are his words about how that's going to work out. That he will be handing over some responsibility and authority to those under him who, who love and know him. So verses 9 and 10, we're seeing a fifth kingdom. So we see four. We saw four of man's kingdoms in Daniel chapter 2. We see four here in chapter 7. But we see a fifth kingdom, the everlasting kingdom of God. And so he is going to put an end to this proud, arrogant, unsuccessful, by the way, rule of humanity over itself. They keep thinking that they're going to get it, that somehow they're going to make it happen. But with uh, sin and man uh, dead in sin, it just it will not happen without God. We know from Scripture that God is always ruling everything, but in His divine plan, He's allowed evil to exist. We see that around us and even flourish for His own glorious purposes. I know we don't understand that sometimes. I, I can't say that I understand everything about how things work out in the world, but God has His purposes and plans. His ways are higher than our ways, Isaiah says. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. So we need to... Uh, bow before him, acknowledge that he knows a lot more than we do, and he knows how he's working it out according to his glorious purposes. But on the other hand, one of the things he's going to do is let puny little man here on earth have his way. He says, you think you know how to do it? You think you got it all under control? Let's see what happens with you. And so that's what he does. And even with Satan joining in. I'd, I think in verses 9 and 10, I... Uh, and as I've studied through that, it looks like this probably isn't talking about the great white throne judgment, but probably more like the judgment that would happen after the great tribulation, the the judgment of the nations. We have that in Matthew 25. We see that judgment take place. And I think if we think about Scripture, we have to realize that there's different kinds of judgment, different lengths of it. There's immediate judgment that happens. We've seen that in the Old Testament a couple times where Israel had sinned, and Korah and his group, God said, all right, uh, we're going to do it right now, move away, and immediately the ground opened up and they fell down into Hades. That was some immediate judgment for disobedience and rebellion against God. There's also postponed judgment. I didn't uh, track down the verse, but I know there's one there that talks about how some sins go on after. So a lot of times, Unbelievers, rebels against God will live their lives full of sin, full of uh, violation of his laws and standards, thinking, well, there must not be a God. I'm going doing all kinds of stuff here and I'm getting away with it. Looks good to me and live their whole life like that. And then they die and they find out immediately that they were wrong, that they were the throne or the, the court will sit in that case as well, and there'll be postponed judgment that they'll, that they'll experience. There's also eschatological or end-time judgment, and so I think that's what we're looking at here. And as you look at Matthew 25, it says, 
when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. I believe that's the, the throne here in Jerusalem. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Then these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's a judgment that takes place right before the millennial kingdom. And only those who are saved from off of the earth will walk through that into that kingdom alive to populate and uh, perpetrate human life in that millennial kingdom for a thousand years. But that separation will happen first, and those show that they immediately go down into hell, into Hades. Verse 11 says, But I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. So I, <laughs> it's, I tell you, studying through this chapter was a challenge. It seems to kind of make progress, then it backs up, then it goes ahead. It talks about the same thing with more detail. So I'm trying to get through, hopefully in a logical way, to help you understand where things fit here. But it just... Uh, how amazing that in the, in the middle of this vision here and where we have this wonderful, great throne room of God and fire flowing and angels and, and uh, holy ones attending God, myriads and myriads of them, just this glorious scene. But in the background, there's this... And we have this, this Antichrist with this big mouth going off in the background. And it distracted Daniel. Daniel was in his vision. He was seeing this throne room. But then it says, because of the sound of the boastful words, I kept looking. And I kept looking. And so there's the end of it there. The beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. So uh, even the most patient person, that God, who's the most patient of all, reaches his limit and the boaster is silenced forever. I have... I'm having this uh, thought in my mind when I look at uh, this word forever in the scripture. And there's a lot of references to it as you talk about glory and blessing and judgment, all those things. Whether, and it probably would be dumb to do, but I've thought that whenever it says forever, I might say it seven times. I mean, seven is the, the number of perfection. I probably won't do that, but... In my mind, when I'm thinking about it at home, I've done it a few times, and I've said it seven times, and I go, well, it gets the idea across that forever is forever. It lasts forever and ever. It's easy to pass over and go, yeah, forever. You can say it in about a half a second, but forever lasts billions of years, and then that's just the start. He's going to be destroyed forever. It's everlasting and so, and this happens immediately after his three and a half year reign of terror at the end of the Great Tribulation. So, uh, as we look at this, this, uh, this time frame covers uh, about 2,500 years. So, we see the beast uh, and his visions, and that's about 605 BC. That's when Nebuchadnezzar's rule started. And then the end of that is when the beast is slain. We haven't even got there yet, so it's at least 2,500 year stretch just in a verse there. Um, and again, one other thing that we would see, I think, as we apply the biblical part of uh, hermeneutics, the looking at what the whole scripture has to say, it says the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. So you might get the idea there that, oh, he's annihilated, he's, he's done, he's gone. Um, that's not what it means. We see, I think, the separation here of the soul and body. We know that when we die, our body stays. We see it, uh, unless it's destroyed in an explosion or fire or something else. But 
normally if a person dies, their body stays, but their soul immediately goes. The Bible tells us our soul of a believer goes to be with Jesus Christ. Or the soul of an unbeliever immediately goes into Hades to suffer punishment forever and ever. So that, that uh, we would look at other things that the Bible says about that to tell us the truth about annihilation. There is no annihilation of any soul. It's eternal. And we can see a proof of this in Revelation 20. It says, when the thousand years are completed, and again, so we're talking about this millennial kingdom, chapter 20 says six times there's going to be a thousand year rule and reign of Christ on earth. But when those thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He was there bound for a thousand years. And he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. That in itself is a great thing. It'd be fun to study because that's a future thing that's coming. And after, at the end of this thousand years, there's a huge rebellion. So you can't say that uh, we sin because of our environment or external temptation. This is going to be the most glorious kingdom where all needs are provided for, sickness is done away, the world is uh, reborn, it's refurbished, Jesus rules, everything is righteous, but still at the end of that thousand years of this glorious rule, there's the huge rebellion. But anyway, that's not the point we're looking at here, but in verse 10 says, and the devil who deceived them into that big rebellion was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, present tense, also. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then again, that may be seven times you could say forever. But so this was a thousand years earlier, and this is what we're seeing in our vision of Daniel, that this Antichrist is destroyed, thrown into the fire. But Revelation 20.10 tells us that 1,000 years later, they're still there when Satan gets cast into the same place. So that's biblical proof that hell is not annihilation. And this is, this is the final hell. This is the lake of fire that God has made for the devil and his angels, but that men, rebellion against God, men and women who have rebelled against him will spend. And so that's, that's uh, some thoughts on that, that this, this idea that uh, destruction means annihilation is just not true. <clears throat> and verse 12, then we'll move on. And, and for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was given to them for an appointed period of time. This is a tough one. <clears throat> and it's hard. This is a hard one to interpret, even as, as I've studied uh, as much as I could find about it. There is really no um, solid interpretation of what this might be. There's just, there's a couple possibilities that even though the rulers of these beast kingdoms were overthrown uh, and other rulers succeeded them, the rest of the beasts are made up of just the unbelieving spirit of these Gentile nations. Even from the beginning until the end, there's been Gentile nations that have ruled on planet Earth. And the idea that they wanted to rule the world is still there. We see the Antichrist and his rebels are destroyed immediately in Revelation 19, but the extension of life could refer to this just remaining Gentile spirit that is kept alive for a little while until the great white throne judgment, at which time they also will be judged and sent into the lake of fire. The other option would be <clears throat> as they were granted an extension of life for an appointed time that the same people, this Gentile uh, nations on the earth, uh, bowed down to the Messiah and were allowed entrance into the millennial kingdom. Uh, the, the one who said the most about the one commentator who said the most said it was probably number one was probably the more prominent uh, interpretation of that. But we're going to have to let God sort that one out. <laughs> Can't say for sure. And, you know, maybe, maybe there's uh, better ones than that somewhere. We can find them, talk about it. But 
that's a tough one, verse 12. But So 13 says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so as we see the progression here, this is, a, uh, this is de- uh, Revelation chapter 5. And as we see uh, that throne room in the Revelation, we see the Lamb come to the throne of God. And he is presented with the scroll, the title deed to the earth. And the, the parallel is obvious here. This is the Son of Man is the Lord Jesus Christ as he approaches the throne of God. And it says, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So it's the entrance into the millennial kingdom as Jesus comes back to the planet to rule, to a rule a restored planet. And so we, we see the parallel there. The Lamb comes, title deed to the universe, opens the scroll to release judgment on the earth during the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation. And so these, it's just awesome how these passages, uh, Daniel and Revelation, go together. But there's, there's so much in, in all of Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament prophets, there's quite a lot of material there if you are reading and studying some of those that also correspond to these times. And they're just, uh, there's not time to look at all those as we go try and catch a chapter in an hour, but uh, the Bible is so full of other references to this kingdom to come and Jesus' rule of it. It's just awesome. But this is, here it says it clear, clear as a bell, that Jesus Christ will come and he will be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Every person on the earth of every language will serve him and he will not serve for a while. This is an everlasting dominion. There's a little question about that that uh, says, well, what about that? If the, the millennial kingdom has a war at the end, how does that fit? But the kingdom never really does end at the end of the millennium. The kingdom is given to Christ. There isn't even a hint of a takeover. They, they come and rebel. They come, and that's another great topic is just some of the details that Scripture gives about the camp of the saints in that millennial kingdom and the Jerusalem uh, an Israel area there where God is, where Jesus Christ is in person to rule. It sounds like it's going to be a great place. And I think as the thousand years go on, those that love God and love Jesus Christ and want to be around, they're going to move over there. They're going to be in that area. And it says there's even a canopy that covers this glorious area where God is, where Jesus rules from. There's not going to be any penetration into the canopy by the rebels. All God has to do is watch and see him coming. Perhaps maybe, I don't know how close he'll let him get, just to think that somehow maybe they're, they might succeed. And then boom, they're destroyed in an instant. It's not even a war. It's just instant destruction for the rebels against God. And it's just sad, sad to think that man, and, that, and it shows his heart that he would rather rebel against righteousness then live that way. That's, that's just pure dark rebellion in the heart of man, and that's what we have in us before we know Christ. Um, so I, as we see this, we see that Jesus Christ will return to the planet to establish this kingdom. And I would just wanted to take a quick look at where uh, we, we see some of the passages that talk about this too. I mean, that, like I said, there's a lot there. But uh, a couple passages in Acts, Revelation 1 and Zechariah kind of put it together. And it says, after he had said these things, and this is Jesus uh, in the book of Acts at his ascension, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They, the angel said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Well, I can understand kind of why they were, but there Jesus going. But he says, this Jesus who, you, who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And so that's what they're saying. He's coming back to the planet Earth bodily, physically, 
to come back and land right where he took off from at the Mount of Olives. His, and uh, I don't have that one from Zechariah. In this one, I have a different one. But the, in Zechariah, it also says his feet are going to touch down on the Mount of Olives and split the mountain in half. And so that's, that's what he's talking about, that Jesus Christ will be coming back in person to rule the planet in the future. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. And so I, it made me think back on your sermon this morning, Mark, about the Jew and the Gentile, God coming to bless the whole world. And it talks about that here. It says, Not just the Jewish eye will see him, every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him. Well, the Romans pierced him, but the Jews pushed it into him being crucified. So everybody has responsibility. And it says, all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. And then Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. The sudden realization that this one that they mocked, uh, scourged, uh, rejected, spit on, beat, is the Messiah of Israel and also the Messiah and Savior of the world is going to be quite a revelation. To weep and mourn looks like... uh, they're repentant that they are sorry for for their own sin and suffering or their sin and rejection of Jesus. But it shows his coming. It shows he's coming back and the world is, is going to realize how big a mistake they made when they rejected Jesus and all the ones even today who are rejecting. Don't reject him. Don't be there turn now, when you hear these things, if you're listening to this, you see that Jesus Christ is coming back, you need to make sure that you personally are ready for Him to come. Or ready to see Him at your death. We just talked about how the suffering in hell is eternal. And joy and bliss in heaven is eternal. No, no one is annihilated. There's two places to be. And you want to be with Jesus. Don't be mourning that you didn't come to know Jesus in time. Make that decision. If you're, if you're hearing God calling out to you today, you listen. You turn today. Today is your day. I think there is so much evidence in the Bible of God's uh, inspiration as you look over the whole thing, the, the harmony of all the passages that talk about different things and especially of the end times. We see just a few of these as we look about uh, him coming again to the earth and his power and great glory. We listen today about Israel and what's going on over there and talk about, oh, well, Iran's going to destroy Israel. Or Russia's going to come in and send a bomb and destroy Israel. It's not going to happen. Russia will not destroy Israel. Iran will not destroy Israel. The Antichrist will not destroy Israel. Daniel 7.11 that we just talked about, it says uh, the beast was slain, body destroyed and given to the burning fire. The Antichrist who, if you would want to talk in earthly terms, might have the best chance of trying to make a kingdom on earth that is not going to happen. He's going to be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 19.20 confirms that. The beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Again, I don't know how close we are to this seven-year tribulation time, this 70th week of Daniel. The rapture of the church is a signless event. It could happen tonight. And that would leave everyone who is unsaved on the earth to be deceived by this false prophet and by this beast into taking this mark and worshiping this man that we're talking about, this big mouth boasting horn. So if that would happen tonight, you better be ready to die for Christ because the deception is going to be intense. He's going to want 
everyone to take that mark. And it's, if you're going to survive physically, you'll have to take it to eat. And so it says, the suffering that the Antichrist and the false prophet who made this happen are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And so will everybody who takes this mark. So that's the end for them. Don't be with them. When Jesus returns to set up this kingdom, it'll be for the last time. It's not going to be, well, he's going to rule for a while, then another kingdom's going to come. Take When it happens this time, it's forever. When Jesus comes to rule, he's taken over for the rest of eternity, starting on that day. No more Gentile rulers, no more human government ever permitted, only the righteous, merciful, just rule of the Lord Jesus Christ forever. And praise God for that. Well, it's a lot to take in, and it was for Daniel too. As we look at verse 15, it says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So the dream had an obvious impact on Daniel. He was sick. I mean, and as we, as we look at some of the other ones, he went unconscious because of the impact of these visions on him. They were physically draining hard, but obviously in this one, distressed for sure, and they were alarming. And so he approached one of those standing by and says, what's the exact meaning? Uh, even as in, in chapter 2, Daniel's had a lot of experience with interpretation, and so he prayed as soon as, he, as Nebuchadnezzar made this demand and he was going to die if he didn't give it, he prayed. And that's, that's what we should do. If we have problems coming along that we can't understand, we should pray. That's, that's where we should start. That's where I should start, is in prayer, which isn't always the way I do it, but that's, that would be the best way, and that's what he does. does. And God provided the answer. So in verse 17, he says, the one standing by brings the interpretation. It says, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. So again, we get a repeat of these things. We heard this before. And so here we hear it again. I guess repetition helps it to get us in our mind that this is exactly what he means. He doesn't, he doesn't want us to spiritualize it and make it into a lesson for good and evil or you know, a, a story for bedtime. Well, that wouldn't make a very good bedtime story, but at any rate, it's, it's the truth. God is telling us the literal truth here about what's happening in the future. So we saw the overview in the first part, and we get some more detail here in this one. Um, they're given to believers in the church for our instruction. And again, these, this is 2,500 years span in these verses. And we're still waiting for the end. And I just a quick look at the instruction for us believers today. That's what we're supposed to be doing, is waiting for this, for God to come, like he said. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, talking about the Thessalonians here, Paul talking, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The things we're looking at here are wrath that God's going to bring on the earth during that 70th week of Daniel that we'll look at in chapter 9. There's going to be a seven-year period on earth that's going to be worse than any time in the history past or any time in the future. That's what Jesus says. But that we're waiting for his son from heaven, so we're not waiting for this wrath. The church is waiting for Jesus to come from, for us from heaven. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. I love the passages that talk about our body. Especially the older mind gets, the, the, the better that looks. Uh, the pains, the, the vision, the hearing, the everything that I can see going away, it happens to everyone. The curse of sin is killing our bodies. But God has a better plan. He's going to transform this body of our humble state, and yes, they are humble, and worse is the older you get 
into conformity with the body of His glory, resurrection body. That is one of the greatest promises to believers. And talking about promises made and kept, here's one of them, that we will receive a body like Jesus with the power He has. We know the power Jesus has. He has to create the universe, to conquer death. So the power that He has, He's going to exert on us to have that new glorious body. But so we're waiting. We're waiting for Him. We're still waiting. And that's, that's the mode we're in even when we look at this fourth, fourth beast kingdom. Uh, 7.19, we'll continue on, see where we get to. Verse 19 says, Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its uh, teeth of iron, its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, which before the three of them fell, namely that the horn which had eyes and mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. So again, we have a repeat. There's that ugly beast again. Good, a good vision of the, the nasty character, the powerful evil that will be alive in this person. And so it's a man, but the, he, has, he has evil power from Satan that he's going to exert on the world when he comes. And so Daniel wanted to know the exact meaning of that and of that. He had seen the vision of these things, he wanted the exact meaning of it. And so Daniel's main interest, even though he'd seen these other beasts, was in the fourth beast. And so so should ours be as we look at this end of this chapter. The true history tells that helps solidify our faith in the Scriptures and in God's plan for the ages is that the fourth beast still lives. It never did totally pass away. It's the Roman Empire but the Roman Empire was never actually conquered like these other nations. The Roman Empire is still alive in the idea that man can still rule the earth. And in these areas where the Roman Empire was, that idea is still alive. It's still going to come back to try and rule the earth one more time. And so that's what which we should get out of this idea of the Roman Empire, this fourth beast. Rome was hated by all the ones that it ruled. Some of these others, and as we look back in some of the history, and if you're, if you're interested, you can, the internet isn't all bad. And so you can get some interesting and good information there about history for one thing. And so I, I watched a number of videos that talked about, and some of them were short. You can go and listen to two-minute uh, summaries of some of these kingdoms. And I listened to uh, Alexander the Great, of Macedon, his history in a couple minutes. Listen to some on the Roman Empire. So it talks about the beast that was different and the different from the others, exceedingly dreadful. And it wasn't different because um, of its size. And I have a couple of slides here that just show this is Alexander's empire, his conquered region that he uh, overthrew and his his campaigns, and then we have the Roman Empire here. So if you if you kind of look back and forth at those, they're they're in a little different area. But if you consider the the size, Rome the Roman Empire wasn't wasn't necessarily bigger, but it, the Roman Empire was different in its organization and how it uh, organized its rule over all these areas. And also its longevity. The Roman Empire lasted for a thousand, more than that. And I, I don't have, and I could come up with more detail on that, and I'm not sure it's necessary, but the Roman Empire lasted a lot longer than these others. And as, as the scriptures say, it's still alive, waiting to be revived in this, whatever form it takes in the end times. And we talk about the ten. Uh, the ten toes, the ten horns. We see that, there's, that it's going to take its form in the last days in some kind of a ten nation or ten area confederacy. And then the Antichrist is going to come and tear out three of those to rule and take kind of a vassal rulership over these other seven kingdoms. And a couple of details that we see in there is that the, um, um, out of, well, out of fear of man, 
Rome arrested, scourged, and crucified the Lord of glory. So it's a, it was an evil kingdom. They crucified the creator of the universe. Rome was cruel and it destroyed all the former kingdoms ruling the earth and never was really destroyed by the others. We see that these three kings, it says, were taken up by the roots, but uh, that they were conquered. And so when it says up by the roots, it just it means that they conquered those other three kingdoms and took them over. It also said that he, this Antichrist person, appeared larger and more powerful and was perceived as greater than his contemporaries. Um, so he's going to be thought of as a world ruler. The world's going to look at him and they're going to see someone that they want to rule them. We can see today, as you look around at the world in every uh, area that you can think of, we are failing. And there is a vacuum of leadership in this world right now that's ready to be filled. They're going to beg for a leader in that day. And this, this little horn is going to be there to take the position. Verse 21, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So as we continue on, we see the same things, but then more details appear. And even before the angel can answer then, uh, Daniel continues to see more. He asks for all the details, but then he continues looking and sees that this Antichrist not only boasts conquers three kingdoms and their territories, but he is going to be hunting down Christians all during this time when he has power. There's going to be a day, though, as we see in verse 22, when all will bow before Jesus Christ. And this Daniel is, is um, kind of overarching in the way it presents these things because it tells, tells a piece, and then in the verse after it tells this big overarching idea that even though the saints are going to be waged war against by the Antichrist, and in fact even being overpowered, which again, if you are hearing this and you don't know Christ now, turn now, because this time is going to be terrible. This time on the earth is going to be terrible for Christians, and he is not going to give up. He's going to hunt down Christians when they're in his power to do so. But Christ is going to come, and again, he's going to rule, he's going to take over, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And that's another detail that is brought out here that's like, wow, what? Not only is Christ going to rule, but he is going to give authority to those who know and love him, the saints. Another, I guess, quick thought on the saints here. Um, when we think of saints, I guess we're, we think, oh, the church. But the Bible is full of saints. There's Old Testament saints. There was believers all the way through. Abraham said uh, when he believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was saved. And every believer, everyone in the Old Testament times who believed in God by faith were saved. They're Old Testament saints. They're going to be in heaven. They're going to be where we are with us. We're going to know them, see them. And then there's the church. In the transition period now, all believers are part of the church, the body of Jesus Christ. We're saints. He, he calls us saints in the scriptures. When we are taken up in the rapture, we're not going to be the last believers on earth, but there's going to be those many that are going to be saved during that tribulation time. There, most of them are going to get hunted down and killed, but it's going to be worth it. If Again, if you're listening here and you don't make the rapture, but you're there, it's going to be worth dying for. Jesus Christ still is awesome. He's the only one that can give eternal life. This life on earth is inconsequential compared to that. It's worth dying for him. But those are saints. Those, those that have come to know Christ in that tribulation time, or we could say tribulation saints. There's going to be believers in the millennium as they walk through in there. There's less information, I think, on that than the others. I hunted down that a little bit, and that was my question I was going to ask you about, Mark, but we'll talk about it. 
But I do know that there's going to be believers only that walk into that millennial kingdom. So there will be those who will need to be resurrected from the millennial kingdom in order to live eternally. They don't have an eternal body yet as they've walked into the kingdom as believers. They will eventually die, even if they make it most of the way through of those thousand years. But they will also be saints. So all the saints are going to be with God in His kingdom. All of them. We're going to be a part of that if we know and love Him, trust Him. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be amazing to experience. Uh, We'll have lots and lots of time to experience all of that. But there will be a lot to see and a lot to interact with. That's for sure. And so all these saints, when He talks about saints, we need to consider that. And when He says saints, and especially when He talks about taking possession of a kingdom that lasts forever, that's going to include all the saints. I guess I'm going to stop here. I don't know. That's, uh, I still have a little ways to go. I don't know. I could probably wrap it up in 10 minutes. Can we keep on? Will you guys hang in there for that? All right. I'd like to finish. And so... Uh, there's a song that we sing, uh, music team plays called uh, The Hymn of Heaven. I love the song. And it says, and just like here, there will be a day when all will bow before him. I love the song. We sing it because it's true. There is coming a day, even though we look around and think this world is a dark mess, and it really is, and it is going to get worse. Still, there's coming a day. And the scriptures tell us here there's coming a day when Jesus will come back. He will rule. We will be alive with him. Those bodies that we talked about there, we will have them. And we will be able to rejoice with him forever and ever. Well, verses 23 to 5, again, we'll talk about just the finish up of this. Uh, fourth beast, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. It'll be different from the others. We talked about how it will be just in length and organization, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And so that's, that's a point made there that this kingdom that is going to be alive under the Antichrist at that time, it's going to take over the whole earth. There's no place that's going to be... Sometimes, you know, we, we would like to, to prepare. We'd like to maybe think that we could isolate ourselves or somehow... Uh, stand up to what's coming along, but eventually when this Antichrist person comes, it's going to be the whole earth. So you're going to have to be either in with Jesus and be willing to die with and for him, or you're going to be in the Antichrist kingdom. That's the only options. He's going to devour the whole earth, and not, and it's not going to be a peaceful, joyful place. It says he's going to tread it down and crush it. So the rule isn't going to be a great system, it's going to be more like terrorism. You're going to obey or die. And he's going to do it through a monetary system. We see that in Revelation 13, 16, and 17. We won't look there, but that's Antichrist's kingdom. It says, if you don't take the mark, you will not be able to eat. I don't know if I... No, I didn't put that in there. And as for the ten horns out of his, this kingdom, ten kings will arise, another will rise after them, different from the previous ones, and will subdue three. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in time and law, and they'll be given into his, time, into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So again, we look at it and we say, well, we've heard it before, but there he's added a couple more details in for us, for here, for us to understand. And he says... The Antichrist will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. So he's not going to give up. So during this time that he has power, he's, he's going to use all his energy, all the time, to wear down the saints. It's not going to be a good time. Uh, tribulation saints, they're, they're going to be blessed by God to have the, the power and the endurance to, to keep on with him. That's what he does in a believer but it's going to be a terrible time for them. He's going to be hunting them continually for that last three and a half years. We get the time reference here. We'll talk about it in a second. But it says he intends to make uh, alterations in times and in law. And I think we can already see some of the law part when you see the evil 
uh, laws that are enacted against God's principles, against his righteousness, against biblical truth. And he'll just be worse. He'll be doing more of that, of what we see already. And then alterations in times, I think, is just to work against God, against knowledge of God in anything. And it was interesting as I was studying that um, the, during the French Revolution, they tried to make the calendar date reset to zero at the first year of the Republic in 1792. And I had not known that before, but the French thought, hey, we're going to have a new ruler kingdom here. We're going to start the calendar at zero because we're it. And they actually, for 12 years, from 1793 to 1805, anybody that used this Gregorian calendar that would separate time with Jesus before and after death or Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, so the A.D., B.C. marking, were subject to prosecution. They couldn't use that calendar. So, you know, whether that's exactly what he means here, it's uh, to denigrate God. Anything that would point to him, they want, he'll want to change. He won't want to let that stay. We even see pushback now, and I don't know if you've listened to and, you know, researched different things, but now time is BCE and CE. So it can't be before Christ anymore. It has to be before the common era. And so now, after Christ's life, it's the common era. I don't get the explanation of how, what that means, because it's still, the mark is still in the same place. But anyway, that's an attempt to push back against Christ, against Christianity, against faith in the true God. We also get a time reference, and we see right here, it says time, times, and half a time. And that's listed in a number of places. It's the three and a half year period that's the second half of that 70th week of Daniel, that seven year period. So the second half, that time reference. And that it's corroborated by Jesus here. That's Matthew 24, uh, 15 through 21. We won't read all of it, but 15 says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, and so he references Daniel and that abomination of desolation, which we know to be at the very midpoint of that seven-year period. And verse 24 says, Then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And he says in 22, if that hadn't been cut short, every life on earth would be cut off. Everyone would die if he hadn't shortened that time. It's going to be that bad. But so we know that the, the seven year is three and a half years, Jesus says, is the great tribulation. So there, he says it. You either believe what he says about a tribulation and the great tribulation or not. He says it. I believe it. So the 26 says, the court will sit for judgment. His dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. It's a repeat of what we've heard. God is going to take back this earth, and he's going to set up a kingdom that's going to be eternal. It's going to start with that millennial kingdom where he's going to refurbish this earth and rule from Jerusalem. But then we see that he destroys this earth that's had any taint of sin on it. In Revelation 21, he talks about a new heaven and a new earth. This, this earth and this heaven around us that he created will be gone, and he's going to create a new one. His kingdom's going to continue. We will continue to be in those kingdoms with him because we're going to live with him eternally. That's the promise. And so this says to the people of the saints of the highest one given to them. Obviously, we know that God's going to rule and we know that Christ rules. So he's not going to walk away and we're just going to get it all like we're the gods. But he just means that under him, we are going to get to experience some wonderful things, some kind of administration, some kind of service, some kind of wonderful life, eternal life that we're going to have with God in this kingdom. It's going to be glorious. We look around at what we're experiencing now. It's the best we've got because it's all we know. But it's not going to be like that here. 
We're going to be in a kingdom that is glorious and eternal. No pain, no crying, no tears, no death. All those things God promises to us when we live in that kingdom with him. So at the point at this point of the revelation, Daniel's exhausted. This whole thing has just wrung him out. And you can see why. And he says, my thoughts were greatly alarming and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. We don't see it all here, but we see at the very end of the book that God tells him to seal it up. He doesn't tell anyone, although, as we talked about it, he must have, as we looked at the time frame, told some of it to Cyrus, or to Darius, because he makes the proclamation that of some of these things that he couldn't have known otherwise. So, but in, in the grand scheme, he was... He sealed it up until the end. And we, can, we will start to understand it now because we are in that end time. I just want to end with um, that great verse that you brought to us this morning, Mark, was Colossians 1.27, because it gives us that hope. And 24 through 27 says it. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for the sake of, for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. I know that that's what you want, Mark. That's what I want for my small part of it, is to fully carry that out. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now manifested to the saints. We have been given the full revelation of God and his word, all of it. And that's what we need to tell. That's what we need to tell. We have such a great story. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is in us, the hope is this kingdom we're talking about and living it with him. That's what we have as believers in Jesus Christ. So I hope you can take that with you this week. It's a glorious truth. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for helping us to get through this chapter. It's a tough one for me anyway. And I'm thankful that we were able to look at it and to hear what you had to say to us in it. Uh, It's glorious. And even though I haven't done a a perfect job of getting it out there, your word will not return void. We heard your word tonight. We read it. We heard what you had to say about the future. We are rejoicing, Lord, because we as believers in Christ have that hope that we will live with you in this kingdom that you're talking about here in Daniel 2,500 years ago is the exact kingdom that we're going to live in with you because we love and know and trust in you. So thank you for those things. Please, God, for those that have heard and something has touched their heart about coming to know you, I pray, God, that they will, that you will draw them to yourself, that you will open their eyes to see the truth of these things versus the lies of what are in the world. Your word is truth. We praise you for it. Thank you for it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you, Jesus, we pray in your name.